Why? Why were you staying with a convicted sex offender? Right, because this was um, serious um, and uh, I felt that doing it over the telephone was the chicken's way of doing it. I had to go and see him and talk to him. Oh, in 2010, that, that wasn't, certainly wasn't a, a, a party to celebrate his release in December, because it was a small dinner party. There were only eight or ten of us, I think, at the, at, at the dinner. But you were staying at the house of yes. a convicted sex offender. It was a convenient place to stay. Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. We reintroduced this man on our Patreon episode this week, but because this is a free episode, I'm thrilled to reintroduce him to the cheapskates, people who don't want to give us money. It's Mr. Luke Savage. Hello. Yeah. Hi, I'm back. Having had elocution lessons, I'm going to be able to uh, fulfill the role of podcast host expected of me and I'm, I'm pleased to be able to uh, continue my service. From the corridors of power at Westminster to the humble pub south of the Thames, everyone is gathered around their radios waiting for your address to guide us through this difficult time. <laughs> yeah, so we watched the King's speech this week, and, you know, there's a lot to say about it. I mean, I don't think we need to explain too much why we watched that. I had the thought, you know, reading the awful uh, John Cass article, which if, if people listened to, uh, it was a, an episode of Chapo last week week. The, the great maestro John Cass, Chicago's greatest son, uh, wrote this really weird article um, about, you know, the Helen Mirren Queen movie, formerly an episode on our podcast. And, you know, that's a movie that it just kind of came and went, you know, I feel like not a lot of people uh, have talked about it since. Well, it was a pretty big deal in its day. Well, for, and for six months. Exactly, yeah. exactly where I'm coming to. And so was a little movie called uh, The King's Speech, which I don't know how many people can have watched it, you know, in the last five or six years, at least. It, but it was a huge deal when it came out. And I was kind of interested in why that was. And um, in light of recent events, I thought it might be uh, might be fun to talk about. Will and I are actually doing a double recording today, and uh, so we're we're taking uh, we've taken some breaks and uh, you know stood on my balcony a bit, or rather stood on the balcony at the Gore Lieberman Studios and and uh, gazed out at uh, downtown Toronto, where you can still see a whole bunch of flags at half mast, you know, on various 19th century buildings, less so on the newer ones, which you know are all are all at half mast for the for the obvious reason. Um, believe it or not, I think next Monday when the Queen's funeral is happening. I think that's the occasion. Uh, they're going to stop uh, the TTC. That's uh, our subway. That's our subway, the Toronto Transit Commission. So all the subways and streetcars and buses are going to stop uh, for one second for each year of her life. So there's going to be 96 seconds where, you know, transit in Toronto, in, in respect to the Queen, uh, who I'm sure will appreciate it, is all going to grind to a halt. Bring a book, folks. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's really absurd. And I've been thinking about how... You know, in Canada, I think we are sort of uniquely placed to see the absurdity of it. I think that the United States has its own relationship to Britain, a kind of complicated uh, cultural relationship to Britain. Where I think the monarchy has a different and very American salience uh, or valence rather than it does in Canada. 
I mean, the strange thing about Canada is I think, you know, here, I mean, this we are a constitutional monarchy. I mean, speaking of uh, embarrassing and absurd things that have happened recently, it was uh, just yesterday, I think, that uh, all or most of the uh, members of provincial parliament at Queen's Park, the provincial legislature, uh, swore an oath of allegiance to Charles. And kudos to uh, Northern Ontario MPP uh, Saul Mamakwa for sitting that one out. I wish there was uh, more stuff like that going on. Haven't seen anything else like that. But, you know, here in Canada, the polling is telling us that people aren't exactly raging Jacobins. I mean, there isn't actually a Canadian Republican movement that's anything as strong as Australia's, which Australia, you know, did come pretty close to becoming a republic. And Republican sentiment there, I think, is much more uh, organized. Well, and I think that's mostly just because in Canada, the monarchy does not really affect us in any way on a day-to-day basis. That's the reason for why there is really no widespread political fervor to separate from the Commonwealth, you know? It's just such a sort of non-factor. The only way that the monarchy impacts our lives on a day-to-day basis is we see the Queen's face on our money. It's it's just sort of uh, an ambient presence in Canadian cultural life, but I think very much a sort of zombie-like one. And there is empirical evidence to back this up. Uh, A a new poll, this is a reading from a, a recent report at Global News, A new poll suggests that while many Canadians plan to watch Queen Elizabeth's funeral next week, the vast majority have not been personally impacted by her passing and feel no attachment to the monarchy. The poll from Leisure and the Association of Canadian Studies also found that while some Canadians are happy about King Charles III taking the throne and others are not, most are largely indifferent to Canada's new head of state. And I should say there's uh, other polling from earlier this year, so before the passing of Elizabeth, which suggests that only one in five Canadians actively wants to... uh, remain a constitutional monarchy and nearly half would prefer uh, an elected head of state. But I think, you know, indifference really is the reigning sentiment here. I mean, outside of Quebec, where uh, for obvious reasons, there's uh, a a lot less interest in the the British crown. (laughs) Now, in light of all this, I just think it's even more strange. I mean, it brings into sharper relief how strange it is uh, to have all these rituals in parliaments, to have, I don't know if you saw Justin Trudeau's unbelievably sort of weepy announcement on the day that the Queen died. In a complicated world, her steady grace and resolve brought comfort and strength to us all. Canada is in mourning. She was one of my favorite people in the world, and I will miss her so. I mean, the usual suspects come out with their sort of weepy things. You know, I think you're mentioning off mic the Globe and Mail editorial board's editorial where it said something like, the Queen loved Canada and Canada loved the Queen back. This thing with the TTC pausing for one second of every year she lived on Earth, like it continues, but there's something alienating about it. There's something very hollow about it. It's not organic. It's not grassroots. It's this thing that has been sort of brought in. It's an enforced ritual, and it's happening in a context where, I mean, you know, in Britain, I mean, I have my own uncomplicated feelings about the monarchy. I mean, I don't think you don't need monarchy when you have universal suffrage. I mean, it's just, there's no, it's not a legitimate institution, I don't think. Uh, But in Britain, you know, there are lots of people who are monarchists. There are lots of people from various backgrounds who do feel some attachment to this institution. And Uh, and no wonder, it's a lot of fun to see the changing of the guards. (laughs) I like that. I like the crown jewels at the Tower of London. Uh, In fact, I think what the royal family should do is uh, have a daily show, kind of like at SeaWorld, you know, where like at 10 a.m. and 
2 p.m. They come out in old-timey regalia, like from the, the 18th century or something, and Charles shows you like what a day in the life of the of the king is. Because I do think if they're going to be symbolic figureheads, they should work a little harder for that. They should like... <laughs> entertain us a bit more like they should do tricks like you should be able to walk through buckingham (laughs) palace and like see them through glass as they live as king and queen well we talked about it i don't know a year ago during the whole uh you know harry and megan uh sit down with oprah you know in the wake of that one essay that i uh was particularly proud of in my uh my new book the dead center is the one that we discussed uh, on that episode and the thesis of that was not that the monarchy was actually going to literally disappear but that in a sense, you know, it kind of has disappeared already. I mean, it's been steadily downgraded and kind of desacralized and secularized. You know, Harry and Meghan uh, leaving to go do like West Coast's, you know... Uh, they'll, they'll have a podcast soon. Well, yeah. I mean... If they soon, don't already. Meghan Markle's podcast is, oh, uh, is, is charting above Joe Rogan, apparently. Oh, shit. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and uh, Harry is the chief wellness officer at a startup, or that's the title <laughs> they've given him. I mean, just just the immediate absorption into the kind of affectations of like the West Coast Nouveau Riche. I mean, I just think that's that's so perfectly symbolic of an institution whose legitimacy is something that stands atop of and, and outside of the rest of society. It's just gone. I mean, it's done. There's been a convergence of the secular and the regal when it comes to modern celebrities. I think you just have to look at, you know, the Obamas, the post-presidential Obamas, who, you know, uh, I think also, you know, try to sort of stand atop, you know, Obama doesn't sully himself with politics as much as he can until there's like an insurgent presidential campaign to, to quash or NBA players about to strike. But, you know, it's kind of like a Jupiterian post-presidency. It's very similar to kind of traditional monarchy, but I mean, no one really believes in like divine right anymore, right? Divine right is now justified, you know, artificially or not on a different foundation, you know, which is uh, which is meritocracy. And so once that happens, I just think the character of monarchy has changed so much from what it was that, I mean, the institution can exist, the palace can exist, but functionally, it's almost already become uh, what you just said. It's like, you might as well just be able to go put a quarter in and like, yeah, look at Charles through a mirror. Well, the main thing that Queen Elizabeth brought was just her sheer longevity. The fact that she was, what she took over in 1952, I think it was, as the longest reigning monarch, she was this sort of living link to the past. And more broadly, I think that's what the monarchy offers people. I don't think anyone really believes it's divine right anymore. You know, the last thing it offers is that it's this one consistent thing in these troubled times of tumultuous <laughs> change, you know? That's right. It's it's supposed to represent... Uh, Order know, and stability. It, yeah, it's it's a it's a linkage to uh, what is supposedly a more ordered and uh, harmonious past. Um, now on that, just before we get to the movie, I have one little artifact to show you. I think there are so many uh, ridiculous displays from the past week uh, in Canada, but I watched uh, while recovering from a concussion last week or I should say, I didn't watch, I I listened because I didn't want to look at the screen. But I tuned in to the Tory convention that overwhelmingly elected Pierre Polyevre as a new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and leader of His Majesty's loyal opposition. Um, But so the Conservative Party apparently flirted with the idea of of like rescheduling because they were like, you know, what what if it's too profane to hold a leadership convention (laughs) while we're in mourning? And what they decided to do instead is, you know, do more like what they called somber and respectful programming to reflect the, uh, you know, 
somberness of the occasion. And um, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's like hours worth of stuff. And they're just constantly these weepy tributes to the Queen. And they did this God Save the Queen rendition. That is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. And I just want to enter this into the record for anybody who is still of the view that the rituals of monarchy represent some linkage to, you know, a more ordered and harmonious past. I just watch the reaction from the MC. What a royal send-off to Her Majesty. That was fantastic. So there you have it. Uh, reject modernity, embrace tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, before getting to the movie, just a couple of plugs. Uh, this is a free episode, so I do feel obliged to tell you folks about the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. For a mere $5 a month, you get an extra episode every week. Uh, Some of the recent ones have included, well, in Luke's absence, uh, I spoke to longtime friend of the show, Chris Berube, about the new Robert Davi film, My Son Hunter, which is a Breitbart-produced movie about the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. Uh, Also had a recent episode with John Semley about the classic documentary, Hands on a Hard Body, Yeah, I want to thank them both uh, for filling in in my stead. I've been away for a little while. I also want to thank Valerie Fay for her marvelous discussion with Will about Ed Wood's uh, very strange film, uh, though interesting film, Glen or Glenda, and longtime friend of the show, Violet Luca of Harper's, for stepping in to talk about uh, the Brazilian film, Terra M. Trance. In addition to one extra episode a week, uh, we also uh, irregularly post bonus content there, conversations that don't fit into full episodes, and also plenty of interviews uh, that I do in my day job at Jacobin as well. So all kind of treats there at the Al Gore tier for $5 a month. By the way, just while we're plugging stuff, I'm on the Canada Land podcast this week talking with past guest of the show, Jonathan Goldsby. Canada Land is one of Canada's uh, best and most popular podcasts. So it was very nice to be on it. We talked about the Queen's death, among other topics. Check that out and just check out Canada Land in general. Uh, It's a good brand, folks. Yeah, and don't miss uh, Will's recent essay in The New Yorker about uh, the cartoon that broke the internet. Yes. Well, I've been away working on a big project that I'm uh, very keen to talk about as soon as I can. Unfortunately, I can't as of yet. But if you're in or near Toronto, uh, I am going to be on a panel at the Toronto International Festival of Authors on uh, the 27th at 7.30 p.m., It's going to be at the Studio Theatre. I'll be talking about some of the ideas uh, in my book with some other panelists who have books of their own. I'm really looking forward to it, and I think it's going to be fun. Um, And so if you've been uh, listening to the show for a while and are into that kind of thing, come out and say hi. My husband is, um, well, he's required to speak publicly. Perhaps he should change jobs. And what of my husband with a G? My physicians say it. I stammer. And no one can fix it. They're idiots. They've all been knighted. 
makes it official then. When his nation was looking for a leader. The people believe when I, I speak, I speak for them, but I can't speak. The last thing he expected to find. Awfully afraid he's given up hope. Was a friend. You could do it. You're the bravest man I know. Your greatest test is yet to come. Your first wartime speech. Broadcast to the world. Should I waste my time listening to Because I have a voice! Yes, you do. Forget everything else and just say it to me. In Select Cities, December 10th. Well, our movie on this episode is indeed 2010's Academy Award winning The King's Speech by Tom Hooper. A movie that I saw in its original theatrical run. Why? Um, I was 21 <laughs> years old. I saw it because uh, it was a front runner for best picture. And I don't feel very good about that. It was me and 500 old people at the Varsity Cinema in Toronto. Uh, I remember uh, I remember a conversation I had at the Toronto Film Festival that year with some old Oscar blogger who was saying that actually this movie was really good. It, it's not your typical Oscar movie. You know, it's... No? It, <laughs> it's like, I, I don't, don't know. I mean, I feel I, like... I haven't I, seen it yet. So I feel like along with, you know, Driving Miss Daisy and a few other things, it's pretty much like the Ur Oscar movie. And I was looking up some old articles. I was trying to put myself in the headspace of why was it that this movie won of all movies at this particular time? And I'm sure, you know, by the end of watching the movie, I think that we had a theory that we came up with. But one reason was that the Academy at that time had a lot of old people in it. Uh, it was up against the social network that year, which I think, you know, it's a better movie. I would say certainly not. It's, on, it's a good movie. Not only a good movie, but a movie that I think spoke to the times a little, yeah. a little more keenly, but nevertheless, the King's speech won. people, people gushed about it. Uh, Rex Reed in the New York observer as the actor of the year in the film of the year. I can't think of enough adjectives to praise Firth properly. The King's speech has left me speechless. They're all the reviews. Uh, if you, if you look it up or almost all of them, you know, it's like, getting A pluses, 94 on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is for the same reason that we have this enforced national mourning of the Queen here, where just in zombie-like fashion, yes. the subway is going to do a tribute it, to cu- the Queen. Cultural elites are like telling you in a top-down way, this is important, this is relevant. And just in, in zombie-like <laughs> fashion, it goes to show how much discourse has changed with the eruption of social media in the 12 years since. Because if this movie came out now, I think critics who write for major newspapers would be just a little bit more hip to the fact, like from ambient discourse that, oh, these people are symbols of colonialism or uh, these people are are reactionary in some way. And so even the positive reviews if this came out now would be tinged with a little bit of, you would sense the critic writing, um, though I'm not in favor of the monarchy, and, and this movie has some problems, it, it's a, it's pretty good. I, I think maybe that's true. I feel like, uh, I, I don't have a hard time imagining people yeah. like, I don't know, maybe. Uh, here's a question for you, Will. Uh, what did Roger Ebert give this movie? There's only one possible grade that he gave this movie. Four stars. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times award the film a full four stars, he added, what we have here is a superior historical drama and a powerful personal one. Mm. So there you have it. Well, you know, you can't be right all the time. Anyway, this uh, we, we, your intrepid co-hosts, by the way, are going to give it a mere three stars. <laughs> uh, this is the movie that inflicted 
Tom Hooper uh, on A Weary World, the director, the Oscar-winning director of this film. He later went on to make Les Miserables, uh, as well as Cats, a movie that seems to have just single-handed... I think he's still in hiding after Cats came out. I mean, and (laughs) Tom... The magical Mr. Mistopheles didn't catch on. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was amazing, you know, in these polarized times, just the cultural (laughs) consensus around his Cats. Like, you know, usually when a movie is that hated, some people will come along to reclaim it or say, actually, it's really subversive or something like that. No, no, no. Literally everyone across the spectrum is on the same page about that one. But uh, Tom Hooper, as a filmmaker, it was just great to be reacquainted with his style watching King's Speech again, because, like, (laughs) he is one of the worst directors to ever live, I actually think. And, like, if you think Ed Wood is a worse filmmaker than him, I'm sorry, if Ed Wood had his budgets, his movies would look a lot better than this (laughs) shit. Like, the wanton violation of the 180 degree rule just yeah there, there's uh frequently throughout this movie uh, there are these conversations between characters that just visually don't work and initially i thought that there was like something that he was trying to do like why is there always negative space in the images why are the characters always on the wrong side of the frame and i don't think there's a good reason there will be it. these shot reverse shots <laughs> yeah. of people having a conversation where somebody is on the extreme right of the frame and then it cuts to the next shot and the other person is on like the extreme right of the frame geographically it doesn't make sense they don't look like they're looking at each other and then every scene just has all sorts of bizarre visual flourishes like it'll start with like a really low angle shot and then there'll be a really high angle shot and then it'll be really far away and then there'll be something in the extreme foreground so many of these shots of like extreme close-ups of people's faces staring up at them filmed in like terry gilliam vision you know uh for no reason no strategy no thinking about what idea are we communicating with the images in this film it's it's as if tom hooper said i'm a british filmmaker making a prestige drama you know a costume historical drama i don't want to be charged with being like a journeyman you know a hack or something i'm not some you know flavorless i'm gonna i'm gonna auteur it up i'm gonna bring style to this and he's just he's just bad He's a he's a horrible filmmaker. Yeah, what I would say to that is there's something to be said for uh, you know basic technical oh, yeah. proficiency. Just, just nice clean <laughs> filmmaking. There's nothing about the content or the substance of the film to justify like these kind of attempts at, at these failed attempts at like avant-garde cinematography. I mean, there's so little there. Like it's it has the it's it exists in like the same moral universe as Barney. Yeah, no, seriously, we'll get we'll, we'll get to the ideas of the film soon, but that. Early Early scene where Colin Firth is in Jeffrey Rush's home office or something. And again, very, very, very wide screen with Colin Firth on the extreme right, empty space to the left. It makes the room look massive. It would make more sense if the room was small because Colin Firth, he's the king. He's coming to this modest office. Well, he's not the king. Oh, yet. sorry. He's still the duke, but but mm. he will be the king. Mm. He's, he's a great man. And he's coming to this very <laughs> modest office that is... Uh, unbecoming of him beneath him the office should look small it should look claustrophobic like this guy he's of a lower order but the cinematography makes it look like it's this cavernous hall you know like just as big as anything as buckingham palace um it's a badly directed film is is what i'm saying (laughs) and and to say nothing of of the thematic elements of the film which are also ridiculous so colin firth stars as george the sixth 
soon to be King George VI, but at the start of the film, he is still merely the Duke of York. He's got a problem. He is a stutterer. The royal family has one job, and it is to deliver speeches. Now, his father, George V, played by Michael Gambon, resents this new intrusion of public relations into his office. You know, it used to be beneath kings and queens to have to directly address their public. But now he finds that he has to speak on the radio. And and what a horrible thing this is. Now, the Michael Gambon character, King George V, he's there to represent the bad side of the monarchy. You know, he is this very entitled person who really believes in his divine greatness. I mean, this movie, like The Queen with Helen Mirren, like a lot of sort of royal kitsch of the last 20 years, what's interesting about it is it is basically a liberal movie. Oh, yes. It's all about bringing the royal character, cutting him down to size, making him human, making him vulnerable, making him weak at times, only to build him back up and reassert his greatness. Right. I mean, the further further what I was saying before about uh, the Obamas, right? Authority and legitimacy, you know, symbolically justify themselves. I mean, they, they have to now. They have to justify themselves uh, in a different way, even if the uh, outcome is basically the same, you know, the outcome being a you know, very hierarchical uh, order. The hierarchy uh, is given legitimacy by a different foundation, right? It used to be that uh, that legitimacy was just a given. And in the era before, you know, TV and radio, where monarchs actually were very removed from people, you know, people weren't hearing their voices or at all or very often, you know, they weren't seeing pictures of them. You know, you go back far enough and most people would have gone through their whole lives without ever seeing, you know, their head of state. Obviously, that's not the case anymore. And so they really are public figures in a different kind of way, which means that they just converge with other public figures. And in an age where the dominant ideology is neoliberalism, well, how does neoliberal inequality justify itself? It's like, well, it's earned. It's meritocratic. The best rise to the top. And so this movie is all about George VI working hard to claim his rightful place as a divine king you know? <laughs> right right uh, and he's got he's got to be vulnerable so the whole movie is about his media training so well first of all <laughs> folks you know your history guy pierce is king edward the eighth but he's got a weak spot and his weak spot is a divorced american woman who he is in love with yeah he's and he's you know the film portrays him i think to create sort of pathos for colin firth it, you know it uh, makes him out to be a bit of a dick, you know, to his stammering younger brother. He's um, handsome. He's cool. Yeah. He flies a plane. Yeah, yeah. And he's got great politics. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Funny that it doesn't really get into that, does it? <laughs> yeah, we can, we can talk about that a little bit later. But basically what this movie is, is just endless scenes of Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush in rooms together, so where Jeffrey Rush is sort of like, I guess the device is that, you know, he discovers that the king, uh, when he gets angry uh, and he's swears he doesn't have problems enunciating and um, f- folks do not let margaret dumont in the room because this is some naughty stuff okay like <laughs> you you can believe that the audience of old people who saw this at the varsity cinema down the block was was scandalized by <laughs> so, some of the some of the swears and curses that came out of colin firth's mouth Scene after scene uh, is just this. And there's very little development except that he gets, I guess, gradually more confident, culminating in the I have a voice scene. I have a voice. Okay, so (laughs) I had forgotten how this scene actually played out. I just remembered him saying, I have a voice. So he's at Westminster Abbey, you know, preparing uh, to give his big speech on the radio. And he's very frustrated. He's never going to overcome this stammer that he has. And Jeffrey Rush decides to sit on the throne. King George says, what, but, 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 what, what, what is this? What, 
bloody hell is this? You're <laughs> you're you're sitting in this in this throne that has belonged to generation after generation. And you know, Jeffrey Rush to provoke him says, oh, I don't know, it just looks like a chair to me. I mean, uh, what right do you have? You yourself said you don't want the job, but well, it's divine right. right if he's, you must so he, know. he's negging him into uh, acting like a king, basically. He's negging. <laughs> he's negging Colin Firth into asserting uh, that he is a divine ruler and to put him in his place as a commoner. And then and then it's so funny because I just remembered Colin Firth saying, I have a voice as if to claim that, you know, I'm an individual, you know, I'm I'm entitled to my own views, you know, stuff like that. But no, it's his voice is that I'm the king and you're a fucking commoner. Well, and then there's and this, and it's important for him for his character arc to believe that, right? And there's this great. Well, it's his, it's his entire character arc. Yeah. That's what the stakes of this infernal movie are. But there's a little, a great little thing at the end where uh, after the king is given the speech, which you know, spoiler, he gives the speech. That's, <laughs> like the movie has no narrative tension at all. 119 uh, minutes, folks. Oh God, what a slog! But so they get to the end. He's, he gives a speech, and he's you know sitting at sitting at his desk, and and Jeffrey Rush comes in, and you know he's saying. Uh, you know, I, I will have to give many more speeches, uh, you know, because he knows it's going to be a long war, etc. Britain has just declared war on Germany. And then Jeffrey Rush, who's standing very close to him, takes this very kind of visible step back. And it's it's there to connote like, okay, the order has been reestablished. Like, Prince and Popper are now back in their, like, correct places. <laughs> and again, that... And that's that, a triumphant moment. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're supposed to be cheering that on. Right. And it's really odd because, you know, the Jeffrey Rush character, I mean, I think... I would say is the best thing about the movie. I mean, I think it's the best, the only interesting performance in the movie, I would say, in that the Jeffrey Rush character throughout the movie seems to be a Democrat. I mean, he, there are these scenes where it seems like, okay, well, he isn't treating monarchy with reverence. Look at how he's speaking to the guy, saying, can I call you Bertie and all this kind of stuff. And then you find out at the end, well, no, actually, that's all just because he believes in in monarchy. And, and like, he's, he's pining to return to his place, you know? Get up, you can't sit there, get up! Why not? It's chair. No, it, that is not a chair. That is, that is, that is St. Edward's chair. People have that carved their names on it. Chair is the seat on which every king it's held and in queen. It's by a large rock. That is the stone of Schoon. You are, are trivializing oh, you everything. You trivialize. I don't care how many royal listen assholes have sat Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? By divine right, if you must. I am your king. No, you're not. You told me so yourself. You said you didn't want it. Why should I waste my time listening? Because to you? I have a right to be. Oh, I have a voice. And and I also like the subplot with him, where he's kind of a frustrated actor. It opens with him auditioning for a play, and he doesn't get it. And the implication at the end, his character arc is that he's not great, but he will achieve greatness through the greatness of George the Sixth. You know. That's right. Uh, as uh, we all apparently uh, do through monarchy, that's how it's supposed to work. If you've read any of the like editorials passed over the past week or whatever, it's like, well, her glory was our glory. It's like, if you say so. So I've done a very bad job synopsizing the plot, but basically... Michael Gambon, George V, dies. Guy Pierce as Edward VIII, goes off to marry a divorced American. So Colin Firth, as George VI, has to be thrust into the throne. And then there are some, some bad winds coming out of Germany. 
uh, looks like there's going to be a war. As the war starts, the only way that Britain can win the war is if George VI can get through a four-minute speech. And, <laughs> and those are the stakes. It's like you only got one shot. You know, this opportunity comes once in a lifetime. <laughs> and if he stutters through the speech, what will that do for national morale? <laughs> uh, Things might go badly. I mean, the Nazis might enter Paris, uh, sweep through the low countries, take Denmark and Norway. So, Things might go badly. <laughs> so there are a couple of great like speech training montages. I liked those, you know, of him doing elocution lesson, lessons. But ultimately, like the one scene that matters is that I have a voice speech. There's 20 minutes after that. Should have just cut straight from that to the speech, you know, because that's the self-actualization moment. <laughs> the movie really is like, it's like My Fair Lady, but for like the landed gentry or whatever. It's My Fair Lady if Eliza Doolittle <laughs> taught Henry Higgins how to be a gentleman. And I mean, you know? that the scene where there's, there's the montage, like it's literally like the Rocky montage, but it's like the coronation training montage where there's that, then there's that amazing scene, which I'm not sure I quite understood its place in the movie where they're watching uh, Hitler give a speech. What's well, that about? Okay, well, I, I loved that scene because first they're they're watching like Hitler give the speech and it's kind of like when you're training for a boxing match and, you know, Rocky's watching the old film of Apollo Creed or something to understand how the left hook gets thrown or something like that. <laughs> You know, like, this is what we're up against. Oh, and that adds stakes to it because Hitler is a very good speaker, you know? You know, like, mano a mano, these two guys are the heads of state. These two guys are sort of symbolic rivals. And one thing that Hitler has over King George the Sixth is he can talk. And if George the Sixth can learn to talk, then he'll be able to beat him on every front. Um, so anyway, George the Sixth does deliver the speech. It's this great emotional climax to the film where he delivers the speech to... Yeah, Beethoven's seventh is playing. And the Beethoven does a lot of the heavy lifting, I think, here <laughs> yeah. emotionally, yeah. Uh, because the text of the speech is a bit banal, <laughs> if you ask me. But Tom Hooper cuts to all around Britain, you know, people in pubs, people at Buckingham Palace, people in various corridors of power. They're all listening intently to the radio. We all share the king, you know? This is the one thing that unites us all, and if the king falls so do we all and you know when we were thinking about why was why is it that this movie resonated in 2010 for a large audience large enough to propel it to a best picture oscar i mean this has got to be it uh, in these polarized times. Um, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I mean, dot, dot, dot. If it was today, it would just be the same thing. It would be like, in the age of Trump. You know? Yeah, and and here's the thing. George VI is not a perfect man either. These may seem like gods when we look back at them through the lens of history, but in fact, he had feet of clay just like us. He He stuttered. He was insecure. He didn't feel as handsome as his brother, but you know what? He bucked up and he learned to speak and he claimed what was his. And we could all learn a lesson from that. Yeah, I mean, if people have watched the uh, the Crown, which I, I will say is much more entertaining than than this movie, I think it's it's you know perfectly I serviceable. I mean, staring drama. at a wall would be more entertaining <laughs> than this movie, but <laughs> no, but, but the, the Crown is very slick and entertaining drama, I think. And the thing I really like about the Crown is that the people who made it are clearly monarchists. I mean, they clearly believe in this. If you watch the intro, it's you know the, it's all these images that are supposed to you know abstractly represent you know this is like the bedrock of tradition, you know, checks progress with continuity and it, you know, it tempers uh, emotion with tradition and et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is, uh, because the people who made The Crown are also clearly like 
royalist nerds, they're actually quite interested in historical accuracy. And if you tell the story of the monarchy, it's like, oh yeah, well in this episode, Lord Mountbatten, who uh, Charles was tutored by as a as a kid, yeah, he was going to lead a military junta that was going to overthrow the Labour government in uh, in Britain. Uh, we don't really hear as much about it in this movie, but you know, in The Crown, the, the king who abdicates, played by uh, Guy Pearce, and I can't remember who plays him in The Crown, it's like, yeah, he was, uh, you know, he went on a, a visit in 19 37 after he was king uh, to Nazi Germany. And it'd be lazy and just read from the Wikipedia article here, but the couple, so this is now the Duke and Duchess, visited factories, many of which were producing material for the rearmament uh, effort, and the Duke inspected German troops. The Windsors were greeted by the British national anthem and Nazi salutes. They dined with high-ranking Nazis such as Joseph Goebbels, Hermann Goering, uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop, and Albert Speer, and had tea with Adolf Hitler in Berkstagen. Uh, the Duke had a long private conversation with Hitler. Uh, it is uncertain uh, what they discussed. Uh, the Duchess took afternoon tea with Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess. Hitler was sympathetic to the Windsors and treated the Duchess like royalty. I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen them to look up the pictures uh, from, this, uh, from this visit. Fuck. Fuck! 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 Fucking fuck! Fuck! Fucking bugger, 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 buggity, 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 fuck, fuck, ass, yes. balls, balls, fucking you see, tit, not a shit, fucking willy, willy, shit and fuck and tits. Yeah, I mean, so there are a number of historical inaccuracies in this movie, and I mean, I, I sometimes worry about this kind of thing because I do believe in artistic license, and I think it can, uh, you know, step into the realm of uh, pedantry a little bit sometimes. And for a lot of things, like people will take real historic characters and make it more about sort of what they mean to us, and and use them as a sort of jumping-off point to explore that rather than the facts. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and I, and I think that's fine. But I think when we're talking about uh, you know figures like this who are, you know, very well-documented figures who by virtue of their, you know, station as uh, royals already have like a mythic aura that's crafted around them. So I think being inaccurate about it, there's something that just feels slightly insidious about that to me because they're already mythologized and you don't need to mythologize them further. But I mean, there are a number of, uh, of historical inaccuracies in the movie. So the biggest one probably being that this guy, Lionel Logue, who's the Jeffrey Rush character, began working with uh, the future king in 19... 26. So this is like 10 years or more before the abdication incident, which is the center of this film. Whereas this movie makes it look like it was this very rushed thing. Mm -hmm. like it was very urgent. There's a little Easter egg pretty early in the movie in the residence that Colin Firth and Helena Bonham Carter, who plays his wife. So I guess that would be the queen mother. Um, I didn't really think about that until now. In their residence, there's a, a picture of the Australia trip that they did in the 1920s. And, you know, I looked this up and it's like, in real life, the artist, futurely known as George VI, you know, opened Parliament House in Canberra in Australia and gave numerous speeches uh, during the journey, despite the fact that the speech therapist was not accompanying him. So it's, there's a lot of kind of just compressing this story uh, into a few years around the abdication of his brother to make it more dramatic. But um, yeah, I mean, if the movie is basically saying this king got it together and worked really hard so that he can be this symbol for all of us during the war, his struggle was our struggle. I mean, it, it really does uh, change the whole meaning like it's it's a lie if you're saying that and like the lesson we're supposed to take from it is we should all do this now in our current moment yeah and i mean the the jeffrey rush character i mean uh lionel logue i mean for what it's worth his grandson told the bbc that there's no way that he would have 
sworn in front of the in fact i think i've found various uh various people who disputed that uh which, which is a major conceit in the film it's how he gets him along the path so all of that if we were talking about a different film might be uh or a film about a different subject um i think would be rather pedantic but i think it's relevant here uh now there's also uh in 2011 i mean shortly before he died there's an article in slate from christopher hitchens about the king's speech it's called churchill didn't say that so i want to go out by reading from this you know hitchens actually funnily enough seems to have enjoyed the film but notes uh, a few issues of historical inaccuracy he writes king's speech is an extremely well-made film with a seductive human interest plot very prettily calculated to appeal to the smarter film goer and the latent anglophile i mean look he wasn't a film critic But it perpetuates a gross falsification of history. One of the very few miscast actors, Timothy Spall, as a woefully thin pastiche of Winston Churchill, is the exemplar of this bizarre rewriting. He is shown as a consistent friend of the stuttering prince and his loyal princess, and as a man generally in favor of a statesmanlike solution to the crisis of the abdication. In point of fact, Churchill was, for as long as he dared, a consistent friend of conceited, spoiled, Hitler-sympathizing Edward VIII. And he allowed his romantic attachment to this gargoyle to do great damage to the very deeply brought coalition of forces that was evolving to oppose Nazism and appeasement. Churchill probably has no more hagiographic chronicler than William Manchester, but if you look up the relevant pages of The Last Lion, you will find that the historian virtually gives up on his hero for an entire chapter. By dint of swallowing his differences with some senior left and liberal politicians, Churchill had helped build a lobby with strong grassroots support against Chamberlain's collusion with European fascism. The group had the resonant name of Arms and the Covenant, yet as the crisis deepened in 1936, Churchill diverted himself from this essential work to the horror of his colleagues in order to involve himself in keeping a pro-Nazi playboy on the throne. He threw away his political capital in handfuls by turning up at the House of Commons, almost certainly heavily intoxicated, according to Manchester, and making an incoherent speech in defense of loyalty to a man who did not understand the concept. Uh, You know... I don't want to digress on Christopher Hitchens here, but I feel like as a kind of lapsed Anglophile himself, he's actually kind of getting mad about issues of decorum here. In one speech, not cited by Manchester, he spluttered that Edward VIII would, quote, shine in history as the bravest and best loved of all sovereigns who have worn the island crown. You can see there how empty and bombastic Churchill's style can sound when he's barking up the wrong tree. Never forget that he once described himself as the lone voice warning the British people against the twin menaces of Hitler and Gandhi. (laughs) In the end, Edward VIII proved so stupid and so selfish and so vain that he was beyond salvage, so the moment passed, or the worst of it did. He remained what is only lightly hinted in the film, a firm admirer of the Third Reich who took his honeymoon there with Mrs. Simpson and was photographed both receiving and giving the Hitler salute. Of his few friends and cronies, the majority were black shirt activists like the odious Fruity Metcalf. Royal biographer Philip Ziegler tried his best to clean up this squalid story a few years ago, but eventually gave up. During his sojourns on the European mainland after his abdication, the Duke of Windsor never ceased to maintain highly irresponsible contacts with Hitler and his puppets and seemed to be advertising his readiness to become a puppet or regent if the tide went the other way. This is why Churchill eventually had him removed from Europe and given the sinecure of a colonial governorship in the Bahamas where he could be well supervised. 
Now, this was in 2011. I'm not going to read the whole of the piece um, because there's not really a lot about the the movie, but I do want to read the final paragraphs in light of recent events. Uh, Hitchens finishes the piece. In a few months, the British royal family will be yet again rebranded and relaunched in the panoply of a wedding. Terms like national unity and people's monarchy will be freely flung around. Almost the entire moral capital of this rather odd little German dynasty is invested in the post-fabricated myth of its participation in, quote, Britain's finest hour. In fact, had it been up to them, the finest hour would never have taken place. So this is not a detail, but a major desecration of the historical record, now apparently gliding unopposed toward a baptism by Oscar. Now watch this drive. <laughs> 